0: I've worked out, well, I have, a, I have a theory as to why we miss out on God's best for our lives. And I think it's because we're stubborn. Well, that's what I've worked out for my life. And I wonder if you might also work out that for your life. The big idea that I want to share with you today is that God's ways ensure God's plans. God's ways ensure God's plans. But when we're stubborn, God's ways don't happen. I really love the way Scott led us around communion and tied in this concept of the series that we began last week that I'm continuing today. The series is called A Beautiful Exchange. And as you can see by the imagery on the screen, the concept that we're looking at is this idea that God has given us so much and in response asks that we give him what we have. Little as it may be, God asks us to give him all. And the contrast and what's exchanged is demonstrated by the different size arrows in the imagery, but last week's message was, was around how do we grasp the bigness of what God's done for us and yet still hold on to what we feel we have rights to. This idea of a beautiful exchange. And today I'm continuing that. Last week we looked at the scriptures and we, we understand from God's own mouth, he says, I am a jealous God. And we unpacked Scripture and looked at that, and I encourage you to grab it on the podcast, grab it on the social, wherever you like to re-listen to messages, I encourage you to go and find it. This passage of Scripture in Exodus 34 is referenced on the screen as Moses having this encounter with God on the mountaintop, and God reveals himself to Moses, the only response that is suitable in that moment, is what Moses does, and he falls on his face before God in worship. And then God speaks with him, and we find something significant in verse 14. God says, you must worship no other gods. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a God who's jealous about his relationship with you. Everything God gives and everything God does is about his uh, I'm going to say his fight, his perseverance, his determination, and his passionate commitment to relationship with you. And he's jealous for that. He's jealous for your heart. And we and we and we listened and pondered on that song last week that I believe we're going to sing tonight. No, it's not on the list. But um, but the the word was was on the first list. <laughs> but but the the concept that God is jealous for our heart because he's passionately committed to relationship with you. And he might even get a bit frustrated with me when I'm stubborn and I hold on to things and I don't get to experience his best. And I shared with you some stuff last night around my journey and my ponderings over the summer and my wrestling with this specific question. If he truly is Lord of my life, does he get the best of my life? And that is challenging me still. Jesus said it to us this way. The scripture's on the screen for you for reference. I shared this one last week, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And speaking to the crowd, Jesus says, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Well, well there's the clue right there. Like when God says, you shall have no other God, little g, Jesus calls it out. He says, you are your little God. If anyone wants you to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. I shared with you last week this concept that the Christian faith worldwide is not known by symbolism in a picture of a crown but it's recognized by the imagery of a cross. Christians and non-Christians alike know Christianity is represented by a cross, and a cross represents death and sacrifice, the life we've chosen. Jesus puts another angle on it in John chapter 12, and he's speaking about his own death. And he's predicting what's going to happen and he's, he's trying to lead his followers on this journey where he takes them to the cross and they're confused as, as most of us are at the moment. But he says this in, in John chapter 12 and verse 24, he says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. So Jesus is making this connection between the cross and us dying, but dying with purpose. Not dying that we would be no more, but dying that we would be something more. If we die, we shall live again. Lately, I feel like I've been dying. Maybe some of you feel a little bit like you're dying. And, and this is where I want to go today in today's message. The reality is sometimes we do feel like we're dying. But I'm going to propose to you today that's by God's design. Jesus would not speak of death on the cross and death like a seed that must die to produce life. He wouldn't say that we must die in order to inherit eternity unless he literally meant God wants to lead us to the place where we choose to die. It just doesn't feel great. So the title of today's message is number two in the series is, Are You Feeling Crushed? Are you feeling crushed? We're going to see what Scripture says about the life that we should expect. I'm going to share a few more honest home truths from from my world. But more important than that, what I want us to see is God's perspective. I want you to take home today what is God's perspective and how does it relate to my life. And that's where I want you to, to land So I want to to set the scene today with some encouraging scriptures, and Ash read the first one for us at the beginning, opening of the service. I'll read it again. James writes a letter to us, the church, and he says in verse 2 of James chapter 1, Dear brothers and sisters, when trouble comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. You know, that fake smile where you just nod and you're like, I don't like that. (laughs) For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete and needing nothing. Well, there's the outcome. The process is in the verses that go before it. Consider it pure joy if you're feeling crushed. Peter writes a letter to us, the church. We write several, but in his first letter, he says this at at, uh, chapter 4 and verse 12. You can see it on the screen as a reference. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange was happening to you. Instead, be very glad. Fake smile. For these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to the world. Peter's saying, look, it's tough. It sucks. It feels horrible. But God's in it. And you're still not smiling. So let me bash you with scripture to convince you. It was a joke. Okay, let's look at Philippians. Paul writes a letter to the church in Philippi and to us also. My favorite passage of scripture, I think, out of all my favorites. And he says in verse 10, Philippians 3, verse 10, at the and we looked at this last week a little bit, but this is the landing point. Paul says, Here, I want to know. The apostle Paul knocked off his donkey spent time with Jesus after Jesus was dead, comes back from a place where he persecuted the church, and now God says, build the church. And he says this, I want to know Christ. The most important thing in all of his life, he says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Man, I've quoted that. I want to see that in healing. I want to see it in miracles. I want to see it in in the church bursting out of its sluggish state and changing this nation. I want to see the power that raised Christ from the dead because the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in every single one of us. And then we read the second half of the verse. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. Didn't have to stop smiling. That's part of it. That's what God wants. It's what Paul came to realize and it's what we as the church need to understand. Essentially, we must die. And in that, I'm pondering in God giving me his very best in order that I might live. Am I truly willing to die? Am I truly willing to give him my best? This next passage, I'm gonna linger on today. I'm going to start here and I'm going to come back to it. And I'm going to unpack it a lot more next time I share with you. Today, I want us to understand the why behind the crushing. I want us to see what God's doing because he connects some dots. And look, I'd encourage you, if you're someone that reads the Bible during the week and has devotion time, to to go to this passage. Go to this letter even and read around the text and read what Paul's saying to the church and and then zoom in on chapter four and and, and just pray that the Holy Spirit lights it up for you because we're going to come back here. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. When we connect with his death through our own surrender, we connect to his life through his resurrection, which becomes ours. That's beautiful. This is the why behind the crushing. And, And we've got to understand that it feels like we're being crushed, but God's got purpose. Life happens. We face challenges. We face obstacles. We face mountains we've got to climb and valleys and muck we've got to wade through. And yet God says we must share in the death of Jesus in order that we must also share in the life of Jesus. Like I said before, lately, I kind of feel like I've been dying. Crushed and not sure. Um, I've shared a little bit, and I haven't shared all the details, because it's not always great to me, for me to bleed my heart on the floor in front of you every week, but I have shared and referenced that the family unit that is the strong family is going through a tough season at the moment. We have multiple challenges that we're facing in various areas of our life, and it's tough. And I come on Sunday and I smile at you, but I don't always feel like it. But I choose to. Life is tough. Because of my personality and the makeup God gave me as a leader, and we've been unpacking this as a team, my nature, my personality is very, very out there in the future. And so one of the things that makes me feel like I'm dying is the massive gap between what I believe God gave us as a vision and what I see as reality today. And I don't say that as criticism, because God's got a process. But for me, when I live in the imagination world of the future and God's taken me to places and showing me things that I get excited about and I continue to dream about, For me, that's hard, and it's, it's a cross I've got to bear, because there's no way I'm saying asking God to take away the dream. The other thing that is part of my makeup and my personality is that when people around me are unhappy, I try and make them happy, and God's teaching me that their happiness isn't found in me, it's found in Him. But when it's unhappy at home or when it's unhappy here, I wrestle with that because I'm, I'm almost like got my hands tied and God says, you're not fixing this, I am. Crushed. Dying. Challenged. As a church, for Zion people, the church we call family, I referenced before that we have completed a culture survey and the results are hard to swallow because truth hurts, reality bites. Half the church feel like this is family and half the church don't feel like it's family. And I value that feedback and I say thank you for that feedback. We are not ignoring that. But it's making a whole bunch of people... Unhappy and struggling. And then my hands are tied and God says, I'll fix it, not you. But we still have to live in that reality. The elders are doing their best to make decisions. The staff are doing their best to implement what the elders are giving them to do. But we can't make change happen, and, and in that we feel a tension and a crushing because the honest truth is what's actually being attacked is the spiritual promise of what God's declared over this church before I even came here. I've said to this to you before, we never attack people, we go after the spirit behind what's happening. And I can tell you, and I might unpack it for you at the family meeting if I have time, but the spiritual battles that we've faced over the last two years with opposition in the building and out of the building, and in the family and out of the family, they're monumental, but they're spiritual. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, it is the spirit that would oppose the promises of God. So we've got a choice. Do we divert and go on an easy path? Or do we hold on to the promise and fight for what we know God will bring to pass? This is our life as leaders. And it feels like we're being crushed. But today I want you to see something. God is in it. and God's ways, ensure God's promise prevails. If you're feeling crushed, maybe there's a reason for that. Consider this thought. Consider the grape. The grape on a a vine. Pruning is essential for fruitfulness. Crushing is essential for fine wine. It's God's perspective in the crushing. Sometimes I think we focus too much on fruitfulness, on output, outcomes, ministry goals, strategic objectives. And God says, the fruit is only the means to the wine. Message number four, In this series, is going to unpack that for us. So don't miss it. I draw a lot of parallel in my life between what I go through and have been through in the seasons of my life and the story of Joseph. I have preached the story of Joseph and the narrative of his life dozens of times in dozens of different locations, dozens of different ways. I really relate to it. And um, I'm going to, I'm going to sprint through it this morning, but I want you to just to read the statements on the screen. And the reason I've done it this way is because you might resonate with one or two of them. You might pass the test and get 10 out of 15. You might just associate with one. It doesn't matter. It's not a test. I'm joking. I want us to relate to his journey because I want to see in his life, God's purposes prevail. And there are 15 markers, which is why I'm jogging through it because we're not unpacking in the beginning of Genesis 37, if you look at verse 3, you'll notice that Joseph was favored and blessed by his father. He was the special son, got the special coat, got the special favor, so much so that his brothers despised him for it. And you can read that in the beginning of Genesis 37 in verse 4. Joseph was despised by those who were closest to him. God doesn't worry about that, and God gives special dreams and promises to Joseph, which you read about in the Scriptures in verse 5 through 7. Joseph has a dream that God gave him, and he holds on to it despite the opposition. Again, his brothers hate him. So much so, number four is that he gets threats of death. He actually gets the curse of death spoken over him. Here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. And let's tell our father that a wild animal animal, killed him. Didn't happen that way. Someone stepped in, but he did have his identity stolen from him. And in verse 23 and 24, you can see his brother's scheme to steal, steal the special coat that set him apart and gave him that mantle as a dreamer and a favored son of God. They stole it from him. And some people sometimes in seasons of their life feel that their identity is stolen. If you read the story, you'll notice that Joseph was given over into slavery. The Midianite traders were coming past with their wagons, so Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver as a slave, taken down to Egypt and sold in the markets like a piece of meat. But he was a slave. And I want you to know this. A slave has no rights and no inheritance. But he wasn't born a slave. So the way he was born and the way he was raised is in direct opposition to his reality as a slave. Joseph works in in, uh, Potiphar's house. Potiphar is uh, a man with influence and a man with money. So Joseph is one of his slaves, and he gets, he gets some favor there. But what I want you to see is that he was forced to work in a pagan environment. Why is that a big deal? Oh, this is the great-grandson of Abraham. He's been raised sitting around the fire, listening to stories of the faithfulness of Abraham and how God redeemed the promises through Isaac, Jacob, and now there are 12 tribes. Joseph knows that because he's part of it, and here he is living in a house that worships dogs, the moon, anything that moves, and he's got to submit himself to that rulership, and yet he chooses to. This would have been despicable for a Hebrew man. He's out of control of the environment around him, and yet in that, his attitude of excellence leads to promotion. He served Potiphar so well that Potiphar says, well, surely the favor of God is on you. Let me promote you to a place of influence. Regardless of his circumstance, Joseph has an attitude of excellence. He has an unfortunate run-in with Potiphar's wife. She doesn't get what she wants. So she accuses him falsely. And the result of that is that he's locked away in prison out of sight. one of the predominant lessons that I teach in mentoring young leaders is how to live a life in the shadows. Because when you have the promise of the spotlight and influence of grandeur, and yet you're currently serving back of house or in the shadows without that prominence, it's the hardest season to be mature in. But here we see Joseph, locked out of sight, isolated, with no hope of improvement. This wasn't like a five-year term he had in prison. He was there for good. Even in the prison, he's able to serve others. Two men have dreams, and he says, well, it's not my business to do this, but God interpret dreams. Let me tell you about it. So even in the prison, he's using his gifts and the grace on his life, and yet he's not acknowledged. He's forgotten about it. Sometimes we feel stink and crushed because we serve and serve and serve and no one ever says thank you. That'll crush anyone. But often God's in it. They promise to deliver Joseph out of his prison. He says, when I stand before the king, I will bear witness to you and I will get you out of prison. And what happens? A cupbearer forgets. Two years, he serves the king, Pharaoh, forgetting that he'd made a promise to Joseph, waiting, waiting, waiting. Only God promotes. And the highlight of the story, which you get to by uh, Genesis 41, is that he is elevated to prominence, purpose, and power. Because Pharaoh has dreams, and he doesn't know how to interpret them. So Joseph says, hey, uh, well, the cupbearer says, hey, I know this guy. And Joseph has cleaned up and comes before Pharaoh, and he says, again, it's not my business, but God's. And he interprets those dreams and is elevated sovereignly, I might add. So, what was his normal now? Success comes because of God's favor. But there's a crushing in the process, there's a delay in the process, there's shadows, and there's opposition, and there's conflict, and there's doing what you know is right, even though you're not acknowledged. All of that feels like crushing. I can relate to so many aspects of Joseph's journey, the promise, the pit, Potiphar's house, prison, Pharaoh's palace, prime minister, whatever stage you're in, whatever aspect of that story you relate to, I'm kind of wondering, what does it feel like to be stuck in a deep pit? Maybe that's some of you right now. What does it feel like to be promised deliverance? And yet, remain forgotten in what feels like prison. When you're waiting and you're powerless to shift your circumstance, it's crushing. It's crushing. friend of ours and many of you, Vicky, shared this Facebook post this morning. I'm just going to read it. Um, a guy called Jeremy Riddle posted it. Um, this morning, and it's become quite relevant to this moment in the message. So just listen to this. This guy writes or shares. Sometimes I have to remind myself I'm living the dream. Did Joseph say that, I wonder, while he was in prison? Not for all the reasons people might assume, because none of those reasons people assume are correct, but solely because God has led me into another level of walking out the plans, the purposes, and the works he prepared ahead of time. It was always the dream, but isn't it funny how a dream can feel so different when it's actually coming to pass? You have to remind yourself, this is what I dreamed. For some reason, we thought because it was our dream, it was somehow supposed to be easier and less work. Like when you dreamed about having a family, and then years later, you're up in the middle of the night with sick kids, and you're despairing of life. You've got to remember, this is the dream. More often than not, dreams are like that. Their reality is distinct from their fantasy. So much so that in the middle of the fulfillment of the dream, we often need to take a step back, breathe deep, and remember the faithfulness of God. In the middle of new trials and troubles that accompany the dream... We must give thanks and rejoice. Truth is, for many of us, our most challenging moments will come because of the fulfillment of God's dream. So instead of despairing, let's take courage and rejoice because God is accomplishing his purposes through us. And that is the dream. I read that early this morning and it encouraged me. This is actually the dream in process, but it's the dream. So I came to this conclusion, crushing and pressure are part of God's process to bring the dream he gave us to life. Crushing and pressure are part of God's process to bring the dream he gave us to life. But Here's where the Holy Scriptures... Give us the wisdom we need. And this is what I want to point you to today. We are crushed, but not crushed. Crushed, but not crushed. Let's go back to the text, the key passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to read to you from verse 7. Paul writes this to us We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we are ourselves like. Fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Pressed, hunted, knocked down, but not crushed. Paul uses really specific language. I I like to look into these things. And so um, when he says pressed on all sides by trouble, he means people. He used a specific language that refers to the jostling of people in a crowd where you have to press to get through, kind of, you know, like when um, Pringles are on sale in the supermarket. Pressed on all sides. It's the same language. I think it's ironic the translators have translated this in some to say we're pressed on all sides by people. Maybe you feel like people are pressing their troubles on you. The second phrase he uses is perplexed, which means puzzled or challenged. How many of you have ever asked God a question that starts with why? Why? God, why? Why is this happening? Why did you do that? Why did they do that? Why can't I do this? Why did you say that? perplexed. God does not bow to your why. He's God. It also means confused in the terms that we can't quite grasp the scripture. And Paul uses language that references that when Jesus says, some of you won't understand the principles of the kingdom. Man, I get that when I read the Bible. And I'm like, whoa. Confused by that. I'm puzzled, perplexed. The reality is, there are some things we just will not understand the side of eternity. But we're not driven to despair. You know what the key here is? Even if you don't know the why, you have to have peace and faith in Him who does. You having your why question answered isn't important to God. Paul says we're hunted down, we're pursued, and we're persecuted. Well, Paul knows exactly what he's talking about there because that's what he had as a job description. As a Pharisee, he would chase after Christians who professed faith in Jesus Christ and he'd kill them. Acts chapter seven, when Stephen is stoned by the Pharisees, Paul's standing there holding their coats, cheering them on. So he knows what it means to be hunted for what we believe. But look at this, we are hunted down but we are never abandoned by God. I, um, I am so blessed in the opportunities I get to sit with people and help them find healing and freedom. And in the last couple of weeks, I've had just uh, moments of encounter with people where I've had a front row seat to watch what God does to lead them out of some kind of struggle or bondage into his freedom. And there's one question that I'll sometimes use to help bring peace into a room where there's anxiety, and I'm giving it to you because you might like to take it home in your pocket. When you're not sure about where God is, then ask him this question. Shut your eyes and ask God this question. God, would you show me a picture of where you are in this situation? Would you show me how near you are to me right now? And in the midst of challenge and opposition or being hunted down and persecuted, you will realize in the worst moment God never abandoned you because he'll show you how near he is to you. He's not always stopping what's going on, because there's purpose in God's plans. But he's not abandoning you. And the enemy would have you believe that God abandoned you. And it's just not true. So if you're feeling abandoned, ask God that question. God, would you show me a picture of where you are in this situation? Would you show me how close you are to me right now? And finally, the fourth thing is Paul says, look, we're knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Once in his life, he was literally hit with so many stones that they thought he was dead. The Jews used to pick up rocks if they thought someone wasn't uh, holy or saying the right things. They were blaspheming God, and they would throw these rocks at them until they dropped to the ground, and they'd leave them to die. And it happened to Paul. He knows what it feels like to be knocked down. But God was his deliverer and God is your deliverer. Though we get knocked down, though we feel like we're knocked down, we must understand God is always with us. This finally leads me back in a loop to Joseph. And and. The favorite part of the story of Joseph for me is in Genesis chapter 50, right at the end of the story. His brothers have come, they're nervous, the brothers have gone again and got dad and brought them back. And now they're really worried that the ruler of the nation, second only to Pharaoh, is going to kill the brothers for what they did. And Joseph replies, verse 19, don't be afraid of me, am I God that I punish you? Verse 20 of Genesis 50, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of his people. Even in the crushing, God's got purpose. Even in the pain and the persecution, even in getting knocked down or being puzzled, if we accept that God is at work in our lives, we must accept that our circumstances are working for his good. We must accept that. Because anything short of that is going to divert God's purpose. Like how many times, I don't know if you want to, um, how many times have I prayed, God, just get me off this bus. I want to get off. He's like, but we haven't reached the destination. I know, I know. But I don't know if I can handle it. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is praying in despair, knowing what is coming to him the next day. It's Thursday evening and he's praying, Father, take this cup of suffering from me. Is that the end of the prayer? Come on. Is that the end of his prayer? But not my will, but yours be done. If we get off the bus early, if we divert God's process, we miss on his very best for us. We come back to the grapes as I land this. I want you to see this. Crushing is God's process for preparing us to receive his promises. And I'm going to come back into this next time I speak with you. And then again, the fourth and final message. Crushing is God's process for preparing us to receive his promises. Some of you feel like you're getting trodden on. Some of you might also feel like you're getting pressure from someone else. Are your circumstances overwhelming you? Or are you actually running away from what God wants to do?